Welcome to The Forest Garden, your guide to transforming your organic gardening practice into an edible and holistic forest garden landscape. On today's episode, we're going to be diving straight into the shade garden. Shade is an incredibly important facet of every forest gardening system. Shade just so happens to also be something that is incredibly undervalued in American agriculture and agriculture worldwide. A note for our podcast listeners, this episode starts off in the middle of a conversation between Ben and I discussing a recent discovery related to edible mulberry leaves. Yeah, so I just got to my grandparents' house, which is a property I've told you about in the past where my grandfather planted all these edible trees and vines and shrubs 75 years ago, maybe, or I don't know, in like the 50s. And I just, he, one thing that he planted, it was a ornamental weeping mulberry tree. And early on entering into permaculture, one of the first things I saw was Eric Konsmeyer's, uh, one of the interviews that he did about mulberry leaves and about how he wants like more people to start eating them. So I tried it. I just like plucked a new young leaf off of the tree and it was delicious. I was like, what? It literally just tasted like a spinach, like a I ate it raw. Yeah. And I don't, and I was like, I think all mulberry species have edible leaves, but whatever ornamental weeping mulberries in the front yard of this house has delicious raw leaves. And I was, I, I don't know, I was blown away. It tasted better than most spinach alternatives that I've had. Even like I tried Hoblitzia tamnoides or Caucasian mountain spinach for the first time this past weekend. I've had a tiny, tiny leaf before from like a, you know, a very small plant, but I tried it, you know, with leaves that were more fully grown in the way, you know, in the size that you normally would eat them. And these mulberry leaves were even better than that. I was like, what? This is crazy. Um, Because I've tried, I I did like a taste test between uh, an edible leaf mulberry variety that I got from Josh Jameson in uh, Florida. And I just taste tested that compared to, the one that I had in my backyard, like a hybrid Alba Rubra. I mean, I could tell the edible leaf was a little bit smoother, like as far as like the fibrousness to, to it, but neither of them like were great. Like I only, I don't know if I tried them raw. I think I cooked them like a little bit and yeah, they were both were pretty strong and they're like very earthy kind of leafy flavor. And then actually both of them, even the edible leaf variety were a little tough. In most greens they'll cook down and you just, you can eat them and like not even know they're there, but this one, like I needed to chew it even after cooking it. For, so that's great that you found that uh, weeping variety that has good leaves. I'm regretting over the winter, I took a bunch of cuttings and started rooting them and they all rooted, but then I just neglected them. And I was like, ah, oh, it's just an ornamental, like <laughs> I should have, you know, done my research better and, you know, gotten a variety that has really good tasting fruit. And now I feel like an idiot because <laughs> I just let them all fade away into non-existence. The leaves that you tried, were they, you know, were they like the size of your hand or something? Were they big leaves? Because I mean, I just picked a very small leaf. It was, you know, maybe the size of my thumb. Yeah, I tried to pick some, the, the youngest ones there. Was, I believe it was fairly early in the season too. So yeah, I don't know. I've never really had one that I thought was like excellent yet. Uh, and I, I had really high hopes because, you know, I paid a decent amount of money to get the, the trees and grew them out. And I mean, they're edible and I'm, I'm sure they're very nutritious, but like you'd think if one, if there's a kind that specifically, you know, called edible leaf, that's going to be like leaps and bounds better than like what you could find in, your, in like your backyard. And this one was, was better, but 
you know, I'd rather eat like a, like a sweet potato leaf or fill in the blank other spinach alternative. Like those were much, those would all be much more tender. Well, I guess I got really lucky then. Interesting. Whenever you come back to Connecticut, yeah, next time you'll have to. to Oh, I definitely will. I was just blown away. Maybe I should go back out there and eat like two or three more and see if it wasn't just fluke. (laughs) But there was like no bitterness, no earthiness. It it tasted delicious. Yeah, I think you you got something good there. Yeah. So uh, what's just real quick, do you like some updates? What are you uh, excited about? Like what's happening in your, your yard? Well, I guess I should say I just got back from Portland, Maine. I'm fully vaxxed now and traveling is... It's cool. It feels like the world is coming back together a little bit. But while I was in Portland, I visited uh, Aaron Parker at Edgewood Nursery. He is someone who also has a podcast kind of similar to this one uh, called Propaganda by the Seed. So I, I listened to that occasionally and visiting him. It was very, it was, it was the only the third time perhaps that I visited a property that really has an established food forest going. It was kind of cool because I got to get a, almost like a, two-hour tour with a local book club that had just read Guy's Garden <laughs> as a part of the Resilience Hub in Portland, Maine up there, which is sort of like a permaculture-esque group that they have going on up there. But yeah, so I, I got to sample and try a lot of the plants that I am already growing, but they're rather young and I don't really want to pull from them too much and got to try Sweet Sicily and Publitzia lots of other, like a type of Monarda that I never had before. And then I, you know, quickly came home and then tried every Monarda that I had growing in my own yard. Wow. Every single Monarda, which for, for our listeners is bee bomb and it has edible leaves that often tastes kind of like a blend between an, an anise hyssop and like an oregano flavor, sort of. Every leaf that I had tried from all my different plants tasted distinctly different, which I thought was really cool. And yeah, so I was in Port- I was in Portland and I got to visit uh, Edgewood Nursery, which was really cool. Picked up a Dystania perennial celery alternative that Eric yeah. and Jonathan uh, talked about, which is was awesome because I tried to grow some of that from seed, but I think I just didn't, I just neglected the seed or something. Or yeah, you're going to stratify those really well. Time. Yeah, exactly. And I did, you know, you saw my stratification setup, but I guess it just might have been a little bit too late in the season, or maybe they need a really long period of stratification or something. But anyways, I picked up also an Eastern Prince seedling of a Shisandra plant. I had no idea that Shisandra Narda is even, uh, is even edible, by the way. I just wanted to throw that in there. That was that's totally new, a new frontier for me. Edible, typically Go outside. edible herbs that typically are thought as ornamentals or pollinators. Yeah, and uh, I knew that they had edible leaves, but I'd never tried them before. Definitely, if you grow any bee balm, go outside and t- sample some of the leaves. Even like the hybrid, like are, are edible. Wow. But what I, what I was trying to say is, yeah, and they're and they're, they're delicious. So it's it's they honestly are like a culinary overlooked culinary herb, in my opinion, almost. Yeah, so I was in Maine. I picked up a Shisandra plant which is this very cool, long-lived, cold-hardy vining species that has edible fruit. I already had one Shisandra, but I wasn't sure what variety it was and if it was self-pollinating. So I got a self-pollinating Eastern Prince seedling from Edgewood Nursery, along with the giant Korean celery or Dystania. Siambadi has a lot of names. And it was a very cool weekend. And then I returned to see all my lupines popping up in my food forest in my Hugels and found some morels that had popped while I was gone. So yeah, it's been a very cool late spring, early summer 
in Connecticut, lots of things happening in the garden. That's great. Yeah, just real quick, I'll, I'll update on my work, mainly, you know, on the, the research farm in Missouri, I've been doing crosses with black, black walnut and Persian walnut. So like the common species that you you'd find in most grocery stores. So we've got pollen from the more domesticated big nuts, like commercial varieties. And we're crossing that pollen with our varieties, which are of black walnut, which are good, but they're not they're very adapted to this area, but they're not quite the quality in terms of the nut quality. So we're hoping that these crosses are going to have the best of both worlds, but we won't know for another four or five years until they start bearing. But yeah, that's, that's been really exciting. And then, you know, just getting my garden together, I uh, got some Moringa plants in the ground, which is going to be cool to have some tropical or subtropical trees um, and Suspania grandiflora, another leguminous, uh, leguminous nitrogen fixing edible tree as well so uh, just kind of being really uh, going for the oddball plants this year and uh, just seeing what happens you know some failures but hopefully some successes but I guess we should get right in uh, to our topic today so we're talking about shade in the garden and shade in uh, on a property or on land basically how to to manage it to deal with it to plant in it and how to think about what to do with the shade that you have a lot of people think that if you're going to garden, well, some people don't even, when they're starting out, they don't even realize that the location of where they plant things matters. And then once people learn that you need a sunny spot, they think you can only plant in a sunny spot. Um, and then once you learn a little bit more, you realize, okay, well, some things like shade, some things like sun, and then there's exceptions to those rules as well. I guess in this episode, we're going to talk about some plants that you can grow in the shade or just how to think about shade and how to, how to work with it. And actually it can be a, an asset because, you know, if you just have full sun everywhere and it's just hot and dry, like sometimes you want some shade. If, if you're a permaculture person, you know, there's the slogan, the problem is the solution. So if you can look at your property and see the shade that you have as an asset, that can be really helpful. You don't have to remove trees and shrubs and stuff to, and only plant in full sun. Mike, I know you have some some plants that you really like growing in the shade. I've got a few I can talk about as well, but I guess the first first interesting thing is is when you think about what types of things, forget about plants specifically, but just in general, I find that greens and, and vegetative growth is something that is better to think about growing in the shade. Things will fruit in the shade, of course, too, but it's harder to get things to fruit in shade because fruit takes a lot of energy. And if you think about, especially like any annual fruits for sure, need a lot of sun. You can get away. There's some perennial fruits that will fruit in the shade, but if you want success, I would lean more towards plants where you're eating the leaves, you're eating the stems, the stalks, that sort of thing, because that's something that not only is it less energy intensive to, to grow those parts of the plant so they can do that in the shade, but also the quality is better in the shade because there's going to be less fiber produced in the shade. It's going to, in general, plants are less fibrous and they uh, elongate in the shade and they kind of stretch out and become, so you get basically more biomass and it's going to be more tender. Um, there's a, there's a process, I think it's blanching where you cover certain plants with pots or maybe, maybe this that one. is blanching. Oh, okay. That, I, I, there's a definition of, of blanching where you're cooking food too. So I get that. Me- those yes. mixed up. But yeah. Some people will actually cover their plants 
intentionally to make them more tender to get that elongation factor to make them less fibrous and better for eating. But, you know, if you don't really want to go through that hassle, planting them in the shade can actually reproduce some of those effects and you can save your full sun areas for your, for your fruiting plants as well. Just to add to what you were saying, which I you know, completely agree with, it's also can benefit you when planting out any sort of green vegetable, it could be perennial or annual, but when you plant, let's say, you know, annual Swiss chard, and you plant it in full sun versus planting it in a more shady position. Let's say that you're in a climate where it gets super, super hot and super, super dry in the mid to late period of summer. The stuff that you planted in full sun might be really, really struggling and not producing very much while everything that you had in full shade, which wasn't doing as well perceivably, but was really just moving along much slower will during that period of time be doing much better. So when we plant things in shade, sometimes you can almost elongate the season of harvest. If you plant two things at the same time, the stuff in full sun will grow really, really quickly. The stuff in the shade will grow much slower, maybe get outcompeted, maybe not. But in the long run, if you kind of manage things correctly, you can plant Swiss chard in two places. And I'm just using Swiss chard as a random example, and then get an elongated harvest due to the shade acting as a sort of buffer to both the speed of growth and also giving it extra protection during the hottest time of the year. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, for most gardeners and growers who are doing it for their own consumption, we don't really want, you know, an entire batch of Swiss chard to be perfectly harvestable and ready at one point in the year. It's much better to, to kind of spread that out. So if you can plant it in different locations, you can have kind of different harvests throughout the year. That way your early crop, which was planted in full sun, once that starts to get heat stressed, you can kind of start harvesting from the shadier spots where, where they're going to have less heat stress and probably be better quality. And that, that sort of reminds me that, you know, we're not growers necessarily. I mean, some people listening might be, but in uh, the farming world, you know, you want the maximum production possible. I like to think if, if I'm just gardening for my own, for fun, for, for eating, if all I have is shade, you know, I still might try to grow certain things that say on the label full sun and see what happens. Um, and in some cases you, you know, you're probably not going to get the full, you know, amount that uh, is promised to you or uh, that you would normally get in full sun. But Hey, if you get, you know, 75%, 50% of what you otherwise would, for in many cases, that's fine. Like how many times have you been overwhelmed with something that you just can't possibly pickle enough of, you know, how much okra can you, can you eat? And so in some cases it's okay to experiment and try planting full sun things in partial shade or even in full, full shade to see if, you know, maybe they'll grow not quite as well, but you'll still be able to harvest something. And I think that's better than not growing anything in your yard at all. That's why I freeze my okra. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, <laughs> then I end up with way too much okra anyways. No, but yeah, and I guess I, when it comes to the shade garden, I am mostly talking about deciduous shade. So it's important to keep in mind that when someone references full shade, that might not necessarily represent, there, there's some differences in full shade, basically. Like if you have evergreens in your yard, that is going to be a really deep shade all year round. If you have deciduous trees, 
the shade is going to change during different times of the year and even be more dappled probably than if it was full shade under really dense evergreen cover. In general, when people talk about shade and forest gardens, they'll use terms like light woodland, dappled, part shade, full shade, and then deep shade. And deep shade is what you should think of as it's going to be the hardest to grow things in, you know, light shade or the sort of forest edge shade is going to be where it's the easiest. Also, I should mention that essentially when you're shade gardening or having a shade garden, you're replicating the forest. Forests have a natural mulch layer. So it's very important to have a heavy layer of mulch in your forest garden or your shade garden, which will build soil and increase moisture retention. There's lots of things that like shade and also like moist shade. In general, the plants that we're talking about will do better in a moist shady location than they will in a drier shady location. Not to say they won't live or produce, but they'll, like Ben was saying, just produce less. It's a little, you know, all of this is a little complicated. It might sound complicated, but it's really not at the end of the, at the end of the day, you could just, a lot of the plants that I'm going to mention today, you can just get a transplant or seed and plant it right under the tree in your backyard. So long as it has a mulch area and not too much competition from grass or weeds or anything, which the grass isn't probably going to be growing there anyway, because it needs full sun. It's, it's a lot easier than maybe I'm making it sound. Also, you can plant mushrooms in your sh- the shady areas of your yard, and they will love that too. Mushrooms love moisture and wood chips and all of that. Yeah, that's a good point, about, especially about the mushrooms. Kind of got me thinking about stepping away from specifically production of fruits and vegetables, just some other ways to think about shade, like other opportunities that it provides to us that maybe someone who doesn't have a tree in their whole, you know, yard or property kind of wishes that they could, they could have. Uh, So, you know, for example, like you said, mushrooms prefer shadier, cooler environments, growing kingstropharias and shiitakes uh, are something that someone can consider in the shadier spots of their property. Another thought that I have is, in the, in the uh, research farm that I work in, we have a, a shade cloth area, you know, especially in the hottest part of the summer, we bring all of the seedlings and cuttings and everything out of the greenhouses and into a very shady area because, you know, they're going to be more sensitive to drying out or to intense heat. It's possible, you know, if you're doing plant propagation or seed starting and you don't have a lot of space in if you, even if you do have a greenhouse, sometimes greenhouses can get really, really hot in the late spring and throughout the summer. So maybe the shadier spots are really good for plant propagation and for seed starting because you're going to have less water demands because the plants aren't sitting in direct sun and they're going to be less stressed, but they're, you know, they're still able to be outside. And so it's going to be safer for them than sitting in a greenhouse baking. What are these other uses for shade well, another thing is if you're going to be doing anything with water in your yard or your on your property, if you're going to be growing um, water plants or you want to attract wildlife, a shady spot is a great place to have water features and, and small ponds. Not only is it kind of an efficient place to to have the uh, the water feature because it's not taking up the full sun growing area, but in some cases it's actually better to located in a shady spot because less of it's going to actually evaporate and you're not going to have this like hot pool of water because if you were trying to attract wildlife they typically like cooler spots to to cool off in the last thing i'll I'll mention there is for frost protection 
And it's not something I've really heard many people talk about in more northern climates. But when I was in South Florida, I, there was a farm that I visited that had some really large overstory trees. And they found that they could get away with about another climate zone or, or half a climate zone difference underneath those overstory trees. And they could get away with growing plants that they otherwise wouldn't be able to because in the wintertime, the temperatures dip pretty low. If they planted that tree in an unprotected spot, they wouldn't be able to benefit from the residual heat that is kept under the canopy. So by planting some of these things under the canopy, they were able to be protected from the, from the frost. And now I, I would imagine you could also do something like that in more Northern climates um, as well, just with, you know, different species. I'm sure that we could. Yeah. You, you have a lot more knowledge than I do when it comes to the, the tropical stuff. So moving on to just the, the plants that I'd like to focus on today for perennials to consider for your shade garden. I've split them up into two sort of categories. There's a much wider list that I could talk about today. I'm going to only focus on about six plants split up into two sections. So the first section is sort of a culinary herb or perennial vegetable section. And today I'm going to talk about Mitsuba, Good King Henry, Sweet Sicily, and Caucasian Mountain Spinach. So Mitsuba is this very cool Japanese parsley that really thrives in full shade. It wants full shade under trees, especially moist shade. It can handle dry or average moisture under trees as well, but it just really thrives in a moist, shady location. I have several planted in a dry, shady location, and they're doing just fine. The leaves and stems are both edible. They have a parsley-like flavor with a sort of a hint of almost like a seaweed or sort of fishy taste, but by no means a bad taste, but just interesting. It's frequently used to flavor dishes the same way that you would use a parsley. The stem, though, is also a celery substitute, which I believe is best when blanched, like we were talking about earlier. And I'm not sure which way it is blanched, but I would imagine with the pot method rather than in water. But yeah, it's good to eat raw. It can be cooked, but you generally don't want to cook it for more than a minute or two. Otherwise, you lose the flavor entirely. It's kind of a dish that you, you know, or sorry, it's kind of an herb, like an ad at the end of the dish sort of herb that you just put in for a minute or two and let it cook. And there are purple and green varieties that I both have. I'm not sure. I can't really tell a difference in taste between the two of them, but my purple ones are older than my green ones. So I'll get, you know, I'll try in a few more months. Good King Henry, which is another plant I mentioned, is a spinach alternative, a perennial spinach alternative that is also very shade tolerant. It prefers part shade, but I've seen it grown in full shade and it seems to do just fine. It's not very good to eat raw, which is very specific to it. It has sort of a soapy aftertaste when you eat it raw. When you cook it, the soapy flavor just completely disappears. It's a really old, forgotten perennial vegetable cultivated throughout Europe for centuries before annual spinach rose in popularity. Lots of history behind this plant. It was frequently cultivated in the UK and also in other areas of Europe, but Seeds of it were brought here to the U.S., I believe, from British settlers. And it, it might have even become like a wild invasive here for some period of time. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, it also has medicinal qualities. And it, historically, it was used as like a poultice, like for skin rashes. And then also, I think people would eat it to treat like scurvy. Sweet Sicily is another shade tolerant 
perennial culinary herb. It also likes moist shade, but can handle other types of shade and full sun, everything. The leaves, root, and the seeds are edible. I should mention the root is edible for a lot of plants that I'll talk about on this podcast, but I personally never have eaten the root of most of these plants. So I just sort of exclude it when I talk about whatever plants I'm interested in. I can't attest to how the root tastes. So I'm going to talk about the things I have tasted. The leaves really taste like a sweet anise or licorice kind of flavor and are very, very, very tasty to those of us that like licorice. (laughs) The seeds are even tastier. They have sort of a similar flavor, but they're almost like more candy-like. They, you know, they taste more candy-ish than the leaves. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) You can also, you can also make a tea from the leaves though. And I haven't tried that yet, but I plan to this year. The leaves can actually lose their flavor, I've heard, when the, the plant begins to flower. So that's something to keep in mind is that once it, the plant begins to flower, the licorice flavor is not going to be there. It's not going to be very tasty anymore. But the flowers attract beneficial insects like the tachinid fly, which are super useful to have in your landscape because they prey upon caterpillars that you know may be munching on your nearby brassica crops, you know, your kales or your broccolis, what have you or potentially other vegetables in your in your garden. So it's all around a really fantastic addition to the forest garden. Ben, do you want to add anything before I move on? I feel like I just had like a mouthful of plants there. No, I mean, I'm just learning. I haven't actually grown sweet Sicily before. And I think all the plants you're talking about are fairly new to me. So I'm, I'm just a student here. <laughs> okay, cool. The, the next one I want to talk about is Caucasian mountain spinach, Hibletsia uh, tamnoides. It is a vegetable that I... I'm growing in several places. And before this weekend, I'd only ever tried or sampled really, really tiny leaves off of plants. This weekend, I got to try a much larger, much more established plant. And they do have delicious raw leaves, which is somewhat unique when it comes to spinach, perennial spinach alternatives. I will say that the mulberry leaf I tried off my grandfather's tree only a half an hour ago did taste better, but not by much. Very random (laughs) that those two things happened in such a short period of time. Once you sort of get into this like perennial plant world or plant nerd world, I think you get a lot more accustomed to trying leaves of things and seeing how they taste. Whereas, uh, you know, before this plant obsession, that was not the case. So yeah, Caucasian mountain spinach. It's another ancient edible perennial vegetable that was uh, discovered in the Caucasus Mountains, the Caucasus Mountain region. It really likes lime, not the fruit, but lime, like the thing that is in soils or, you know, in rocks. And its uh, original noted habitat is that, well, it's a vine, I should point out. It's a perennial vine, and it vines up along rock ledges and into these caves in the Caucasus regions. I've seen video of it. It's very, very interesting. It, It was rediscovered and shared throughout the plant nerd world, I guess would be the way to put it. And now people are starting to become more aware of it. It is really like, I think one of the best perennial spinach alternatives for raw eating. It tastes just like spinach to me. It doesn't have any weird aftertaste or anything. It's been dispersed throughout the rare perennial vegetable community, basically just due to the devotion of several plant nerds like uh, Aaron Parker, who I met this past weekend. And he was telling a story about it while he was giving this little tour where basically he sourced two different seed lots and then has been breeding them. And before that they were, not setting seed, the plants weren't setting seed, but he found two different strains essentially of the Hippolytia plant from two different areas set relatively close to each other in the Caucasus region and was actually able to get them to set seed. So that's really cool. Shout out to 
to, to him for making that awesome contribution. And yeah, I, I just say it's like a must have for everyone's forest garden. It really, it is a really uh, perennial vegetable for Northern growers, I should say. I'm not sure how well it would do in like a zone eight or zone nine garden. It really seems to like cold areas and it also performs better in full or part shade than it does in the sun. Because during the hottest time of the year in full sun, it will yellow and sort of peter out pretty early. Whereas if you put it in full, a full shade location, like under a tree that is, you know, you're not worried the vine is gonna take over and kill it. It will die back to the ground during the winter time also, which is helpful. It will perform better in that shady location than if you were to put it on a trellis in full sun. So very useful for a lot of people who have shady areas that they're looking to take advantage of in a, in a different way. It would do very well on like a, a north side of a fence or a wall, which is pretty unique. Most plants won't do that. So yeah, and then the second half of the things I want to talk about in terms of in, in the plant shade world is, as Ben mentioned earlier, it's very hard to get anything to produce a fruit in a shady location, which is why when you go and you purchase annual vegetables like peppers and tomatoes, everything says full sun because it needs all of that energy to create the physical fruit that you're going to eat. It's putting a lot of energy into creating that delicious object of desire that we care so much about, you know, the red tomato or what have you. But there are a few very interesting plants that do produce things that you can eat abundantly in shade. And there's only a handful of them that I'm aware of. One of them is the ribes genus, so like currants and gooseberries. And then I'm also going to talk briefly about honeyberries or hascaps, which are kind of new to the, to the scene and very cool and very exciting. So there's many different types of currants. There's black, red, white, pink, golden currants. For decades, cultivation of them was banned in parts of the U.S., but recently these restrictions have been loosened in most states. And ribes, the whole ribes genus thrives in part shade and like deciduous dappled shade. They don't, they really don't want full sun. They will produce abundantly for you in the parts of your yard that you didn't think you could grow any sort of fruiting bushes. Black currants perform better than red currants and other like golden currants. Golden things generally seem to want more sun. And this is, this is true of many different types of fruits, like black raspberries, for example, also handle shade pretty well, but yellow raspberries really won't produce like at all in shade. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Like also like blackberries do well in part shade, I've heard. So it seems like the blacker the berry, it can handle the shady areas of your lawn better than uh, the lighter colored fruits that you might be growing. But don't quote me on that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like an expert. Oh, it's an interesting pattern. I so, um, yeah, it is an interesting pattern. And that's why I'm saying, like, don't quote me because I could be completely wrong. But I have observed black raspberries, wild black raspberries growing in part shade and full shade locations all over the place and also on my property and producing abundantly. You know, like, have it, there's tons of fruit. But I've read that in terms of raspberries, yellow and red varieties really don't produce very much at all in part shade locations, mm. but you, the, the darker the berry, the darker the, the red raspberry, there's like a few varieties that are purple. They're not black raspberries, but they're not red raspberries. Yeah. And those ones also do better. They do better in shade too, I've heard. So I feel like it is a thing, but 
<laughs> I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not a scientist. Very, very interesting stuff. The la the, okay, so the last thing I'm really going to talk about here on this long tirade of perennial vegetables and shrubs for shade is the honeyberry, also known as the hascap, which as soon as any listener is done, you know, with this episode should just Google and find out as much as they can about them. Cause I think they're probably the most exciting thing that I've mentioned so far. They're incredibly cold hardy, sort of like a blueberry relative that grew in Siberia or like <laughs> in Russia and all these really, really cold places and also really, really shady places. It's supposedly a berry that tastes even better than blueberries. It looks a lot like them, but it has more of like a longer cylindrical shape, which at first when you look at it, you're like, oh, that might look weird. That, you know, that kind of looks strange. Like it's not, a, it's kind of like a blueberry wannabe, but I feel like the blueberry is actually like a honeyberry Hascap wannabe because <laughs> apparently the honeyberries just taste so much better. So wow. yeah, you know, and I, and I haven't tried them yet. I have two planted and they're just wee babies. I feel like in like six years, I'll get to try one or I'll go find someone that's growing up. Yeah, as I said, they're more cylindrical. They're like originally native to Russia or surrounding areas like, you know, Japan, I've Poland, maybe that very cold, very cold places. The University of Saskatchewan is kind of known for their honeyberries. They uh, underwent and created a breeding program to produce new varieties, which they did. It's very exciting. Lots of interesting research out there from them on, on honeyberries. As I've already said, they can produce fruit under seemingly like dense shade. I, I believe that they're, they were found in like boreal forests. Out of anything that I've mentioned today, I would say that these shrubs are potentially the most productive shrub in the shadiest areas of full shade conditions, potentially. They're very new to cultivation in North America. When I say new to cultivation, I mean like when my grandpa was gardening when he was my age, this was not an option for him. And now it is in the grand scheme of things. That's a very short period of time. So it's, they're definitely worthy of everyone's time and cultivation. There's more than like 30 cultivars. One thing to note though, is that they do need a male and a female variety to produce fruit. I have Taka and Tana, and I hope they're delicious. I guess I'll find out. They're just little babies. And I planted them under established peach trees. But then I later learned that they actually, these bushes can grow rather tall. So plant them somewhere where you're not worried with, you know, that they're going to outcompete the fruit tree that you planted it next to. I don't know. I'll be fine, but it's something to keep in mind. Well, let me know when you try them for the first time, because I haven't tried those e either, which is strange because I, I have a thing where I need to try every single fruit out there. I, and I, It's on my list, but I haven't been able to find someone who's, who's growing them. So definitely, uh, definitely let me know what you think when you, when you do try them. I have just two fruits to add to this, this list. One's a shrub and one's a tree. Gumi, which took a while to fruit in the shade for me. I had the shrub for several years before it finally uh, fruited. But once it fruited, it fruited pretty heavily. And I was able to get, you know, off of us one small, uh, the shrub was probably about three, four feet tall. I could probably get like maybe a half pound of berries off of it. It was, and they were really nice there. If you never tried it before, it's kind of like a sweet, sour, deep red uh, berry with a seed in the center. And it's a nitrogen fixing shrub too. So it's a nice way to stack functions and, and get some nitrogen in the ground as well. And so also just a beautiful plant, Eliagnus in particular, that whole genus. So that includes autumn olive, which I, I don't know if it's, if it's tolerant. Uh, I think it, I think it is uh, shade tolerant, but that whole genus is just a really nice genus for edible plants and just 
they're just beautiful, I think. So yeah, there, there's Gumi. And then the other one I'll add in with an asterisk is pawpaws, which are becoming more familiar by many gardeners and landscapers because it's a native tree, native to the Eastern US. And also, uh, but it's hardy dish range can actually go all the way up into uh, Ontario, maybe even more Northern parts of Canada. It's very, very uh, cold hardy. I think we've, we've maybe covered some things about pawpaw in the past, but you know, as many people know, that it's got grapefruit, you know, it's talked about as a shade tolerant tree. And so there's an asterisk there, which is that it, it can survive in the shade and, and actually it needs shade in the first several years, two to three years of its growth. Oftentimes you'll see people who put a shade cloth directly when they plant the tree, the seedling in the ground, they'll have a cage around it to protect it. And then they'll have some shade cloth on top of the cage or around the cage to keep it from just baking in the sun. Cause that's, that's a risk. And it can take shade for, for much of its life. And you can, you can go into forests and woodlands and see uh, pawpaws growing in fairly deep shade, but the, the big asterisk is just that they don't fruit that well in the shade and they'll, they'll produce some fruit and they'll be smaller. Um, but if you want full production, you're going to, they're going to need full sun. But if you're, if you're planning long-term, you can make this work, right? Like for example, like, you know, I planted mine, my neighbor put in a giant fence that shaded out a lot of my yard. So I just planted a bunch of pawpaw trees along that fence and they loved the shade for the first couple of years. And then as they grew bigger, they were able to kind of grow tall enough to reach that sunlight. And then after that, they were off to the races. They were tolerant to uh, sun at that point. And the same thing goes for, you know, if you're, maybe you have a tree that uh, is older or is, or diseased or something and is creating shade right now, but Hey, maybe five years from now, eight years from now, that tree's not going to be there anymore. And then you could have this beautiful pawpaw tree, but in the meantime, you could be growing them uh, in the shade and using up your, your shady areas for what is actually an amazing fruit. If you can get some of the named cultivars. The wild ones are okay, but I recommend the Peterson varieties of pawpaws. Well, so I was going to say pawpaws are a great understory tree in general, and that's why they do so well in the way that you described, is that they, you know, in their natural range, they would grow to be only so high while there's deep, deep shade. And then when the trees that were taller, you know, got knocked over by a storm or something, then they would accept the new sun once they're already established and grow to their full size and then really start to produce, which is really awesome. And that's really how should we, we should be designing all of our systems and forests with for forest gardens with trees that do exactly that and are really good at doing that. So pawpaws are an excellent contribution. And yeah, apparently there are people who are planting you know, seeds or seedlings in full sun, like at the University of Kentucky, their program, Kentucky State University. Basically, yeah, I guess they're planting them out in full sun and then just expecting a huge die off and then, you know, whatever survives, survives, <laughs> which is interesting. But in, yeah, cool, right? Like it's like selecting for, for sun tolerance. Yeah, which is very cool. But or maybe, I don't know if they're selecting or if they're just, you know, that's just. Well, they they, like, maybe they're, they're not doing it intentionally, anyway. but they, if, if you plant out, you know, thousands of, of seeds and seedlings and unprotected and you you know you're gonna have a high mortality rate but the ones that survive you know presumably survive because they have a bit more genetic tolerance to 
to the sun. No, exactly. And uh, I, I would presume that they're doing it intentionally, but who knows? And I mean, this is just something something I heard on uh, a, a different podcast. Who knows if it's how, how accurate it is. But in any case, just before moving on, I wanted to touch on the Gumi autumn olive thing. Gumi is like the one plant that I wanted to, to put in my forest garden and then never ended up sourcing. I mean, maybe besides like pomegranates. And I wish that I had, and I didn't. So but uh, autumn olives, which are the Gumi relative, if you do decide to plant autumn olives in your landscape, just be aware that they are super invasive in most states, most areas. They will seed prolifically if you know birds come and eat the fruit and then poo the fruit off in the forest. The autumn olive will really come up and take over your native forest. So that's generally not a good thing. Gumi, however, is significantly less invasive. And you don't really have to worry about that with, with Gumi. Yeah, that's what I've noticed as well. I didn't really see it spreading too, too much. But then again, I only had a few years of, of fruit production. And honestly, the birds got a lot of the, the fruit as well. But it's a, it is a pretty big seed. So it's not the sort of thing like, like mulberries are spread by birds pretty readily. And that's because, you know, one mulberry will have many, many seeds in there. And so and it's very easy for the bird to take a bite of a, a mulberry and then have, you know, seven or eight seeds in its gut. But Gumi berry has this big football shaped uh, ridged seed. So I can't imagine it's that easy to spread a lot of them very quickly. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. So what about, uh, what about brassicas? I know annual brassicas will tolerate some shade in the, especially in the summertime, if they can be somewhere where it's a bit shadier, you can extend the season and they'll be a bit, a little bit better. They won't flower as quickly in terms of the brassicas you work with and especially the perennial ones. Do you think that they're a good choice for the shade or no? So, well, thank you. First, I should say thank you for even bringing this up because it did not occur to me whatsoever to talk about this on this specific episode, but I should even before talking about perennial brassicas talk about just perennials in general being much more tolerant of part shade. Part shade is something that if you are like in my climate in zone 6B, maybe 7A borderline central Connecticut inland, but within three miles of the Connecticut river, it gets really, 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 really hot in the summer. It, like, and it wasn't always like this. It, we're getting hotter and hotter and hotter days. But, you know, when it's in the summertime and it's maybe 80 degrees or a high 70 at the coastline, only you know, 30 or 40 miles away from where I live or less, it is like 100 degrees in my area. So with that considered, as a gardener who is trying to think, uh, trying to think about the way that the, sh- the, the sun is going to be beating down on my plants throughout the day and stacking functions and about the, you know, the design of my landscape, it's not a bad idea to put even some annual vegetables in places where they're going to get some late afternoon or just afternoon shade. Because think about, you know, even, even the things that you have that are producing fruits like peppers or, or eggplants, if you're in a place where suddenly you have six days in a row of a hundred degree heat and full sun all day long, and you're not irrigating or the, you know, you're irrigating some of the time, that's going to be pretty stressful on the plant. So having some late afternoon shade for a lot of perennial vegetables and annual vegetable plants can really be a bonus. When it comes to perennial brassicas, I have kind of heard like a mixed bag of things, depending on who I've sourced them from. I went really far out of my way to source Daubenton's kale, Taunton Dean kale, Daubenton's kale, panache, purple tree collard, 
every variety of perennial collard that was available from Project Tree Collard in California. And also, what are they called? Yellow collards, I think, a, a very rare perennial collard in like Georgia area that only one farm has. All of these collards are not necessarily perennial in zone 6B, but they might be because not that many people have tested them. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm testing their perenniality with you know mulching practices and planting some out, planting some in the greenhouse, planting some in microclimates and mulching all of them and see how they do. And so I have a greenhouse filled with these perennial kales and perennial collards. And then I also have hugel mounds where they're all planted out in. And some of the people that I've sourced them from had said full sun, which is the generic thing that you hear from anyone when you're getting plants from them. Some people said that they want shade, which I believe the yellow collards, the yellow perennial collards that I got from whoever in like, you know, the Southeast, uh, they said that these plants want shade. Most of the people have mentioned full sun to part shade. And I planted pretty much everything I had in locations where I get sun in the morning till about noon and then they get afternoon shade and then they get sun later in the day as the sun is going down, which I think is pretty ideal for most gardens. You know, the hottest time of the day, noon to 3 p.m., they're shaded, which is awesome. And then, you know, they get the morning sun, they get the sun at around like, you know, 4 p.m. until sunset. And I think that's pretty ideal. I think that you could get away planting most perennial kales or perennial brassicas in a variety of different sun and shade locations, and they'd all perform pretty well because annual kales do really, really well in shady locations. If you plant kales next to your tomato plants, for example, they'll you know, enjoy the, the shade from those tomatoes because the tomatoes grow so tall. But I guess, you know, I just, I, I can't say for sure. I'll have a lot more to say in like three months from now, I guess would be my final remark. Great. Yeah. I like the way you think through the sun angles throughout the day and, you know, okay, it's getting this amount of many hours of sun and this many hours of, of shade. And I think that's really important for people to start thinking about not just this is a sunny area, this is a shady area. It's like, well, different parts of the day, they, those might switch. Um, and then also different parts of the year, you know, what happens, places that are sunny and shady in March might not be that way in September uh, or July, I should say, it's probably better. No, that's, that's a very good point. My thoughts were, even though I'm, I'm not very uh, experienced with perennial brassicas, but I would assume that they, they can tolerate some shade and they might actually prefer that in, in certain climates. One I'll throw in, and I know you have experience with this plant too, is perennial arugula. I was able to, to grow that pretty well in shady spots. The see, that's a uh, diplotaxis uh, tenuifolia. And it lasted for, I'd say at least three years. And I got very early greens in, in the spring and very late greens in the fall. It was a nice green to have, especially if you like that spicy arugula flavor. And I didn't find that it struggled too, too much in, in uh, the shadier spots. Although I didn't really have them growing in the sun because I had heard that they propagate very readily. And so I didn't have that problem at all, but that was just something that, that I, you know, took into consideration when finding a spot for that. And that's something that it's kind of a, another helpful thing with shade is if you, if you're worried about the invasiveness or aggressiveness of a particular plant, if you put it in the shade, it's going to definitely mellow out 
the speed and the intensity that it tries to grow, which kind of brings me to another planet, uh, water celery, Oananth, Javanica. I really like because it's a very easy plant to grow. But again, this is one of those plants that you have to be very, very careful with because especially if you live somewhere, well, actually it's, it's going to overwinter even in cold climates too. So you definitely don't want outside of your, outside of your zone and getting into natural areas. So uh, that's something that if you're going to grow for that, you know, nice celery flavor, you know, you could be eating it throughout the, the winter, which is great too. You want to make sure that, you know, probably want to start growing it in, in the shade, even though it's not necessarily a, a plant that prefers shadier areas. Um, it's still going to grow just fine in the shady spot, but it's constantly going to be looking for that light. So you have to, you have to keep your eye on it. Yes, yeah, that's a very good point. I, I would say that anything that you're worried about it being invasive, it's a good idea to plant it in a dry shade location. Oenanthe is a great, like, I, I say this as I, I had planted, I planted my Oenanthe in uh, a place where it certainly could like take over the, um, well, I, it could take over the Creeping Charlie if it's already there, which I'd rather have Oenanthe than Creeping Charlie anyway. So, sure. but if you get, if you get any plant that you're worried about being potentially invasive, for example, like if you source Pookie from someone, it's a good idea to plant it in a shady and sometimes dry and shady spot so that it is sort of kept in check. We can talk about Fuki, but before we do that, I just wanted to say that any sort of shrub that you want to have in your landscape, but you know that it grows super, super tall and large, potentially very quickly over a season. For example, if you have lovage or the dystania, the perennial Korean celery that, uh, we, that we mentioned earlier, they potentially can grow really, really big, but if you plant them in a shadier place, it's go, you know, they'll still grow and thrive throughout the season, but they'll generally grow really big in like April and then sort of re remain the same general medium sized shrub in that super shady spot. Whereas in a full sun location, they could grow to be like, you know, six or seven feet tall, which you might not want. So that's something to keep in mind too. When I planned out the perennial brassica locations, you know, they get full sun from you know when they come up in March or mid-March through April until everything leaves out in May, where they're really able to get a good start and then they grow, you know, more slowly. So it's really good to have plants that are gonna get, you know, in, in April they're gonna get full sun no matter what, because unless it's a place where you have evergreen trees, the trees won't have leafed out yet. And that's just another way to think about, you know, when you're planning out your landscape, how to how to sort of stack things and time things in uh the fashion that really works well for the plants. Yeah, great. Yeah, I don't know too much about Fuki either, but it's in the conversation in the permaculture world when it comes to shady, wet spots. And it's a, I believe it's a Japanese uh, spring vegetable. I've never grown it, but it's grown for its stock. It's also called butter burr. Who knows? I, I don't know to, enough to say that you should never eat it. There might be ways that you could prepare it properly, but it does have some some fairly serious alkaloids that we need to watch out for. It's got a pyrolyzidine alkaloid, which can be liver toxic and form tumors if you eat too much of them. But like I said, there might be a way through, who knows, fermentation or processing that, you know, you could deactivate them. But the, the thing we were just talking about over text, like that's really surprised me. I never heard of this in my life is that it will form these alkaloids and they'll be, they can accumulate not only in that plant, but surrounding plants will also uptake alkaloids. Um, and then if you eat those plants, you'll get some of these alkaloids as well, which is strange because I never really thought that like surrounding plants would absorb exuded alkaloids of, 
yeah. you know, yeah. any particular one. We don't have to go too deep into it, but I just wanted to mention it because it's it's pop- popularly talked about as a uh, shade vegetable in the perm in permaculture or perennial vegetable. Yeah. Uh, it's worth worth some research before you plant a bunch of it. It is definitely something that for you know, it's one of those plants that the permaculture community definitely attached itself to like at some point. And uh, it is, it's kind of scary to think that those, um, those alkaloids could be transferred to like your rhubarb or whatever you have next to it. And it also, I guess that just kind of goes to show how little we still know about plants through like relationships underground and what sort of things are shared between uh, mycorrhizal connections and all that kind of stuff. So uh, good to know, but uh, it is a plant that is widely consumed in Japan. Coincidentally, Japan does have high numbers of liver cancer also, uh, apparently. So (laughs) I would, I would say it's, it's something that maybe you don't want to plant in your forest garden. Maybe you do, if you do, maybe don't eat it or at least uh, wait until there's a little bit more research to show at what stage these PA alkaloids sort of exist in the, in the plant. Maybe they're not very uh, concentrated when the plant is young. We, We don't really know these things. I, I believe that in Japan, the larger stalks are sort of like an asparagus or celery substitute, and they, but it's kind of bitter, and they like roll it in salt to eat it, which is very interesting. The really, really young shoots, like just before it flowers, when it comes up sometimes so early in the spring, it could be, you know, in my climate, like February or even January, if there's like a warm up which actually happened to me. They came up so incredibly early. These are very, very cold hardy plants. Those, you know, potentially have less of the harmful alkaloids than a fully grown plant does. That is true of other plants that have these same alkaloids I've heard. And also you should keep in mind that secondhand smoke is also, can, can also give you cancer. I imagine that anything in moderation might be okay. You know, if you eat like fuki once in your life, it's highly unlikely that you are going to get cancer. If you eat fuki every single day, all the time, every year, that obviously is probably not good for you. That said, I still, you know, don't intend on eating my fuki plants anytime soon, but I'm also not ripping them out just yet after, even after learning the scary situation about essentially sending poisonous alkaloids to the plants I have planted in their vicinity, which is very alarming. (laughs) That's very, very alarming to hear. (laughs) One last one that I'd want to mention here for shade is another one that unfortunately I haven't got a chance to grow yet, but it's uh, very popular in the ornamental community is uh, hostas, um, which are beautiful shade loving plants, but they can also be consumed as spring vegetables. I believe you can plant them in fairly deep shade as well, uh, but they can't handle full sun. I think they prefer part shade or, or, or full shade. I think they have a kind of a history of consumption in Asia, like a lot of perennial vegetables for the leaves, and leaf stems, very nutritious. And the, the variety that you want to look out for the cultivated for its, you know, for edibility, because you, you I believe you can eat most cultivars, but there might be certain ones that taste better than others. And, the one that word on the street is uh, sage, so S-A-G-A-E is a cultivar that's really great for eating your hostas. So that's a good way to kind of have an ornamental around your forest garden that will look nice, do well in the shade, but you can also eat it as well. Yeah, and I have eaten them this year for the first time, and I can attest that they are very tasty. 
However, like many Asian vegetables, they do have a bit of bitterness to them. I didn't eat them by myself, and I was the person at the table who enjoyed them the most as the plant nerd. And <laughs> there might have been some complaints about bitterness from other people at the table, but yeah. sure. um, it is very—it's a very tasty, very tasty perennial vegetable. I have only eaten the you know ornamentals that are planted around my house. You know, they tasted very good. In my opinion, if you can handle the little tinge of bitterness, it was no more bitter than like a garlic mustard leaf. They are better blanched. You can blanch them with a pot the same way that we've been describing earlier. And that supposedly makes them taste a lot more creamier, less bitter, just better eating all around. And that's true of, it, just, it makes it more tender. It's true of many perennial vegetables is that you blanch them with the pot and they come up all white. They're just better eating, which uh, they don't look good. It's not something that you would like buy at your local market because you'd be like oh what's wrong with this white plant that is it looks like it has a disease hey but they fact, sell white, white asparagus better. at a premium at the farmer's market yes they do and that's because they blanch it and that's that's people don't recognize you know people don't yeah. always know that another thing that's interesting is, like hostas do handle full sun part shade full shade really like full shade there are some hostas that were planted at the property well before anyone who i'm related to lived there and they were planted in tons of different locations, full shade, full sun. The ones that are in full sun last year with such a drought, they didn't come up at all. And I didn't even know they were there. So I planted, <laughs> I planted things like false indigo and a variety of different shrubs and, or, you know, uh, perennial vegetables right on top of where the hostas were, not knowing the hostas were there because they didn't come up because there's no water and they're in full sun, a super dry area. And then this year they did come up. But I haven't been watering them at all. You know, I have like a false indigo in there, which is a nitrogen fixer and doesn't need my constant attention. And it is about seven to 10 inches taller than the six inch hosta leaves that came up, which wow. it's almost like the hosta is acting like a, the hosta is acting like a ground cover. The hosta leaves haven't come up very, very tall at all. There hasn't been a whole lot of rain this spring. So they're not, it hasn't grown into what you see an ornamental hosta look like at your local garden center or whatever. And it's very interesting in a dry, you know, opposite location of what hosta wants, which is a moist, shady spot, you know, super full sun, super dry, poor soil. It's still coming up. It's still living, but it's just functioning in a very, very different way. It's functioning just like a ground cover, providing some shade for the soil below it. And only maybe 10 feet away in the same soil, but in a full shade location, the same variety of hosta is planted there and it like is fully leafed out <laughs> just because it's in the shade, Sure, uh, which is really cool. So yeah, that's my, that's my commentary on the, the hosta debacle. Cool. Yeah. I hope to try it at some point, maybe this year or next. Well, do you have any other plants you wanted to talk about? No, I think that's pretty much it. I mean... I think that uh, shade is just generally really overlooked as such a valuable resource for landscapes that we're cultivating in. And maybe our listeners can take some time to look at the spots in their yard that are shady and potentially neglected and think about you know, what they might want to be growing there. Yep, absolutely. Agreed. Well, this has been another episode of the Forest Gardener podcast with Ben Bishop and Mike Amato. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode.